Hi guys, welcome to this week's NTT20 Monday podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell on the line. George, Alec, George, how are you getting on, pal? Wow, you are excited today, Ali. I, I, I am excited today. I am okay, sitting in exactly the same spot that I was in yesterday when you and I did a an Instagram live. I have moved, but not very far because obviously we're not going outside. We did some periscopes around the playoff finals last year, but that was our first Instagram live. And for the most part, it was pretty good fun, I thought. No, it was good yesterday. We had uh, tens of viewers watching us doing it, which was always nice. We did. And um, some great contributions. Thank you to those not only who watched, but also chipped in a lot of witty comments. I think next time we do one, and and I think there will be a next time fairly fairly soonish. Uh, we want to make sure that we're sort of across the comments a bit more. That was my own personal bit of feedback. I, I, there yeah, was so, I so much going on. I was slightly ignoring some of the good stuff in the comment section. Anyway, this is no live stream, but it is the Monday podcast. The format is pretty straightforward. We're going to have a brief coronavirus update, but the main part of this pod is nothing to do with the current pandemic. It's about EFL football, more specifically EFL managers. George and I decided this would be a good time to look back at the season so far and pick out our five managers of the season. So a quick bit of coronavirus update and then EFL managers of the season. George, yeah, it's important to just uh, have a quick discussion about anything that's changed since last Monday. I'm going to throw to you on this because you were part of a BBC Radio 5 live show on Saturday afternoon, which you helped to set up. Plenty of really good interviews in there. What can you tell me about that? Because I was not listening. (laughs) Uh, What else were you doing at this current time on a Saturday afternoon? Let's not go into that. But we, um, I, uh, yeah, I was on 5 Live. Uh, Very kind of them to continue giving me work given there's no football going on. Um, but I was on with Chappers, Mark Chapman and Michael Brown and Kieran Maguire and myself with the four kind of in-studio, out-of-office guests, if that makes sense. Um, and we had Phil Wallace, chairman of Stevenage. Uh, we had Ivor Heller, who is the commercial director of AFC Wimbledon. Uh, had Gareth Ainsworth, manager of Wickham, of course, who we might talk about again in a second. Uh, and uh, Rick Parry, the chairman of the EFL, all came on to talk about the different experiences uh, around the coronavirus. And of course, since last Monday, we have had um, the news that they, there's been a bit of a relief package, I guess, for EFL clubs. I think it's 29.1 million or 28.1 million pounds of a cash advance is being made available to them now, um, which is obviously good news. But as I say, it is a cash advance. It's not a grant. This is money that they had budgeted for in the future and 20 odd million pounds of interest-free loans as well, which is also good news, but again, it is a loan. So no handouts, as it were, an advance and a a loan system. Uh, Rick Parry, for the first time, as far as I'm aware, said on the show that it's very unlikely that the EFL could stretch to provide any more help. So uh, in The Athletic, I think last week it was, um, Mark Palios said that he thought as welcome as that £50 million was, he thought it was about half of what was needed. Um, but if he was listening to Mr. Parry on Saturday, he'd have been disappointed to hear that that's unlikely to be forthcoming without government help. Phil Wallace was very interesting on the work that Stevenage are doing in the community. Um, and he was also very uh, measured, I will say, when Michael Brown asked him what he thought about Macclesfield uh, still above them, despite not necessarily playing by the rules when it comes to uh, the football finance and compliance and the regulations around it. Uh, and Gareth Ainsworth was interesting, of course, about keeping speaking to his players and making sure that they're all OK. And Ivor, uh, Ivor was, was very interesting about AFC Wimbledon, saying that at the moment, the fundraising for Plough Lane is still very much going ahead. It's still very much on track. Of course, he foresees problems and he called for Premier League players to take a wage cut uh, in order to provide EFL clubs with the money that they needed. An idea which Rick Parry was very quickly um, moved to say he did not think was going to happen. And Darren Bent's uh, uh, musings on national radio this morning seems to tally with that idea. Right. Well, I mean, that is an exceptional breakdown of what was a very detailed... If um, you want to listen to it all, and very, very BBC Sounds. And BBC Sounds is the place to be, because, George, you chipped in with plenty of good stuff as well. I'm sure, not having heard it, but I will be listening back 
after we've got this pod out the way. Um, and just lastly on this, you touched on it there, a piece in The Athletic. I think it was on Thursday. Matt Slater, who was on the pod last week, and thank you so much to you guys who gave such positive feedback on what was quite a difficult podcast not difficult to arrange not difficult to record necessarily but as we went through those three interviews last week uh, we were sort of getting more and more concerned about the realities of 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 what this means for the game uh, Matt Slater was just fantastic and he is doing fantastic work in such tough times for The Athletic he wrote a joint piece with David Ornstein who I think everyone is aware of uh, and it, it it's well the title is players need to get real and take pay cuts to save some EFL clubs now that is the, the strongest part of the piece uh, uh, but it is a piece that a bit like our pod last Monday continues to give a, a bit of an overview a few different opinions of people who are trying to understand what this means for our game and what's needed really to, to try and keep things on an even keel. Mark Palios, as you mentioned, uh, is the sort of primary quote giver, uh, but also Anne Budge of Hearts. Mark Catlin, the chief executive of Portsmouth. Uh, Mr. David Bottomley from Rochdale. He's the chief executive there as well. So lots of really good interviews there. It's an, it's another good overview of the situation. If you're interested and want to find out more about how coronavirus is impacting football and the EFL, then I'd point you in that direction. And if you haven't subscribed to The Athletic and you would like to do so, you can go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20 and you'll get 50% off an annual subscription. So there's obviously plenty of content that's still churning away on The Athletic, plenty of good stuff, and that piece especially by Matt Slater and David Ornstein, we would suggest. But today, as mentioned, is not about doom and gloom, because while we will hopefully continue to provide the best coverage of the situation surrounding the coronavirus, we also want to provide some more light-hearted content, some more uh, opinion stuff, I suppose, with the actual football having been suspended. And we've decided to begin today with our five EFL managers of the season. This is across all three divisions. There was no, no particular weighting. We didn't need to have a certain amount from each league. We didn't, we didn't care what had happened last season, what's come before. It's all about this season and the five managers that we think have done the best job. We're going to be counting down from five to one. Before we get into our top five, George, because of course this wasn't easy, and of course there are more than five managers doing a very, very good job, let's have a chat through some of the highly commended managers who are not in our top five, but were very much part of our back and forth this morning when trying to work out who they were. Who do you think, George, can well, feel most hard done by here? <sighs> I think David Artell. I mean, I, I think before we do this show, we need to just say that for anyone listening who thinks that if your team is top of the league, that means your manager deserves to be the best manager in the league. That's not the way we're thinking about this. There are so many different things that goes in to what makes a manager good, depending on the, the circumstances of the club that he's managing, whether that's on, on pitch or off, off the pitch, the wages what he's taken over, um, you know, you could easily, in my view, have a manager who is coming 10th in the league and could be the best, doing the best job of all the 91 clubs. So, you know, if the the, the argument, well, he's, we're, we're above them in the league and therefore he's doing a better job than him doesn't fly with us. So let's say that. And therefore, I think that David Artel, for me, is the one who could feel probably the most hard done by because last season, admittedly under his guidance, crew were very much a mid-table side um they uh, were, were a decent enough team maybe underperforming last season you have to say and at the time of recording at the time where football has stopped they are top of league two uh, albeit aided by the fact that swindon are level on points with them and have a game in hand which you probably expect them to pick up something from so maybe in a bit of a forced position not top of the points per game table george but, but top my, of the league table but my reason why i think maybe uh he misses out compared to the ones we're going to talk about is because there's a lot of star quality in this crew side at an age where, you know, they're going to be playing at higher levels. He's got four players basically in Pickering and G Kirk and Wintle mm. who are better than league two. And he of course deserves credit for bringing them through at the ages they are in their early twenties. But at the same time, that aside with that talent side with, with players like that should really be, punching at the top end and you know the fact that I'm saying he's the one who deserves to be feel hard done by 
is significant. But I just think the other guys have, have done a little bit more with what they've been dealt. The other one I'm going to point out as well before you go is Carl Robinson. Hey. Um, of course, because I know you're not going to. Uh, a manager who I've given a lot of grief to in the past, but only fair. I mean, he, he's helped by the fact that Oxford went from uh, went from eighth to third in the second half of the final game before football was called off. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I backed us to get relegated about a week before the season. So the fact that we're up in third um, and the players that were brought in in the summer, the ability to cope with the loss of Baptiste and Fosu has all been pretty impressive. So big up, Carl. Well done, Carl. Uh, yeah, a couple of other names, I think, on the highly commended list. Uh, Matt Taylor of Exeter. Again, another one. Probably if you'd, if you'd done this maybe two months ago, he probably would have been in the top five. He probably would have crept in. But he's not quite in it this time round. Paul Warren, for me, is the one who can feel most hard done by, I think. Because, uh, as discussed, it's not just about league position. Uh, there's a lot of circumstantial things that have to be considered and this is obviously subjective as well but when i was thinking about what makes uh, someone to what, what what puts someone on this list what do you want your manager to do what do they have to do well in order to be doing a, a, an exceptional job well clearly results are for many people first and foremost and therefore league position plays into that but there's a couple of other things i think are really key here um, being the face of a football club being the the leader um, and and that and all that that entails, both in terms of media work, also how you um, interact with the fans and the community, how you uh, manage your players in terms of emotional intelligence and and that sort of man management. Uh, of course, getting the most out of the players that you have. I think everyone accepts that not all squads are created equal. It's uh, it's a bit of a guessing game at times, trying to work out exact budgets within league tables. But more or less, you can find some value looking at squads on paper and working out who is getting more out of the players uh, than you might have expected and, and those who are getting less out of the players. Uh, so that's something to bear in mind. And then, uh, of course, if they are key in recruitment, and some managers have uh, more say in their club's recruitment than others. Some more say. It's, uh, it's, about, it's about spending the club's money wisely, of course, using it to improve the team rather than just bringing in players that... Uh, just for the sake of it, players that, that don't make an impact, so you can look back at that. And then, of course, developing a, a playing style. And I think this is crucial and will we'll really come across in some of the names that we talk about. Develop a playing style that, first and foremost, is effective in a footballing sense. Uh, it, it often starts with having a solid base, a good defensive unit, uh, a structure out of possession that, that makes it tough for opposition teams to play through and, and create chances. But also... And looking down the leagues, I think this is the real quiz for managers this season. It's the attacking side of the game. There's a lot of teams who are good enough defensively. If you look at the top teams in all three divisions, the majority of them, you'd say, are a stronger defensive side than probably some incredible attacking side. So I'm also giving a bit of an onus to anyone who has put in place an attacking style of play that, that sees their team, their players create Good, consist, good chances consistently. So that can either be having an exceptional plan A, um, like a certain manager in the championship, or being <laughs> versatile, having a plan A and then potentially a plan B and plan Z for things that don't work. Now, how does this pertain to Paul Warren? Well, I think he kind of ticks a lot of the boxes. Um, and I think it's pretty harsh that he's missed out. But he wasn't in my top five, so I'm not complaining or anything. And I, I just wanted to give a shout out to Paul Warren. Certainly on the Emotional intelligence and uh, motivational factor, he scores very, very highly indeed. I suppose you'd say that he does actually have a pretty tidy squad at his disposal to work with. And Slavin Bilic has to have a shout out as well. Um, look, West Brom had a good squad last year and uh, whoever was in charge, whether it was Moore, whether it was Shan, they didn't get them the most out of them. That was quite clear. Now, you'd also yeah. say that, that Bilic was helped in the summer by some excellent signings, many of which will have joined the club because he is such a uh, an inspirational figure for so many. So uh, he takes a lot of credit, but he doesn't make our top five, George. He, he, he's just the one where I would say it's harder to really see his impact. If you look at that side, there's so much individual quality, whether it's that midfield duo of Sawyers and Livermore, whether it's Pereira pulling the strings in that number 10 role, whether it's you know Robinson who's come in or Diangana before him, there's so much star quality there. That it, I mean, Bilic's biggest string to his bow is getting them playing well, but you wouldn't necessarily have him. I wouldn't necessarily. I know that loads of West Brom fans disagree. I mean, even we had one of that, that one uh, fan comparing him to Jurgen Klopp to us in terms of his impact at West Bromwich Albion. I don't see it that way, and I don't think you do either. But that's not to take away the fact that he's obviously doing a magnificent job. Georgia, who's number five on our list then? We've talked about those who have just missed out. 
people are starting to work out who we've not mentioned and starting to predict who might be in this top five. Uh, get us started with number five on the list of best managers this season in the EFL. So our number five is Gareth the Ains Ainsworth. Wow. Wild thing. Um, wild thing, exactly. And I mean, this is a case where probably if we had done this in the beginning of January, you'd have been pretty hard pushed not to put him top. And mm. I reckon a few people who would be doing their own lists would maybe now leave him out altogether. And after this poor run, and it's very important to note a few things. Firstly, Wickham were predicted to be relegated as... By all the know, experts. By everybody. <laughs> not just these two idiots here, but everyone thought that Wickham were going to struggle uh, there didn't look to be enough, really, in terms of, of the squad that they um, came into the season with from last season. They did make some eye-catching additions, uh, but not necessarily. I mean, I'm looking at you, Rolando Aarons. Not all of these have necessarily uh, come off, mm. although Fred Onyadinma has made a difference when he's been fit and been playing. David Weed has been a very good signing as well. Um, but crucially, with, with Ainsworth, the, the gap between... Uh, the expectation and what has been the case has been absolutely massive. Even though they're currently in eighth, they're only one point off third. So they're still very much in that picture. And they have at least one game in hand on every single team above them until you got to get to the top of the league. And then we also have to factor in the fact that the Wickham have been undergoing a takeover for this whole season. Mm. They, they are trust owned. There have been financial issues and insecurities around the club for a long time now. They needed this takeover from Rob Coig to go through in order to secure their long-term future. And it also and delayed their transfer business. Not, exactly. Not, I wouldn't say substantially, but it was getting to that point. They only made their first signing just under four weeks before opening day. So it was sort of uh, 8th, 9th, 10th of July. Now, at that stage, a lot of teams are already... Uh, have, have very much dipped their toe, maybe even the whole foot, up to sort of ankle level into the, the transfer <sighs> waters. So it, it wasn't, you know, in the end, actually, Kuig was able to bring a boost in revenue. And that was uh, that gave Ainsworth the ability to spend a little bit more money than everyone had sort of predicted. It, 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 it was feared that they were having to cut their budget, which was already the smallest or certainly one of the smallest in League One. But Kuig did give himself a bit of breathing room. But what I touched on earlier it's about not wasting that money. And I think you'd say that in the signings that Ainsworth made, uh, they certainly helped put together um, a, a, a different side to this team, which I think you, we have to talk about style of play because it, it's always a, a feature of any discussion well, about any good team, but certainly when it comes to Wickham, because they do things so differently, I suppose, and, and almost uh, a sort of anti-modern approach. They have the lowest possession percentage stats in League One. Uh, it's 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 clear to anyone who plays against them and opposition fans and, and dare I say managers have made plenty of complaints in the past about how they manage games, especially when they're ahead or when they're level and they want to keep it that way. But what you can't argue with is, is how effective Ainsworth has made this group of players. Um, that was the case last season, even in just staving off relegation. But in using the, the funds that Rob Cooey gave him to improve this side, give them a couple more layers, I would say, going forward, a couple more dimensions. And that's what we saw at the start of the season. They were able to score goals from different areas of the pitch, uh, always good from set pieces. Joe Jacobson's delivery, uh, both in terms of sc crossing and scoring from free kicks and corners and penalties is uh, is crucial. Using Adebayo Akinfenwa, who is just the most remarkable footballer I mean he, he's he's never been better than he is now and he's I think 37 years old which has I don't think it's ever happened it's absolutely absurd Ainsworth has to take some credit in getting the most out of him and it, it's not as simple as they just bash it to Akinfenwa because if you look at the games that Akinfenwa was played and hasn't played it's clear that Ainsworth has got you know different ways of playing plans B plan C that sort of thing and uh, and it has been very very effective he's the longest serving manager in the top four tiers um, we talk about how Manager needs to be the face of a club, and he is just magnificent in 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 all areas. In that sense, such a vibrant character, someone who rubs positivity off anyone who who comes into contact with him. And George, the start of the season, the first twenty games of the season, twelve wins, seven draws, just the one defeat, a building Adams Park into an absolute fortress. I think they've won thirteen of eighteen home games. Uh, as it is, they're at eighth in the table, but. 
in points per game, they're actually they've still got the third best record. So they've got a couple of games in hand if and when yeah. we return. Yeah, and also it's just the home form I think is so impressive. We look we look at this this league, this clutch of teams that they're playing whose budgets kind of dwarf them. You look at the likes of Rotherham, Ipswich, Oxford, Fleetwood, Coventry, Burton, Gillingham, Sunderland. These all the teams with the best away record in the division. They've only lost twice at home. They've only failed to score once at home so far this season in the league. That was against Fleetwood uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if you're looking, you know, uh, when I was there for, for their last home game against Tranmere, Matt Cecil, uh, who works for the club and the media team, told me they haven't lost at three o'clock on a Saturday at Adams Park this season. It's a great record, that. Mm. And, and unlike what I said about Billich with Ainsworth, his mark, his kind of footprint is just all over this side. Mm. Whether you like the style of football or not, whether you think they're long ball merchants or it's caveman football or you think that's an unfair thing, an unfair label for them. What you cannot question is is the way that he has them set up. If you watch their side, they're so well drilled in what they want to do. And that's why he deserves a lot of the credit for this. And, you know, whilst it's been the, the progress from last season to this season has been stark, that the general progress over the last five or six years has been clear for people to see. Mm. Uh, it's, you know, even when he was linked to the Sunderland job a few months ago, we saw that people were still unwilling to give him that credit. But, um, you know, whether or not you like it, he's, he's an effective manager doing a brilliant, brilliant job this season. Yeah, halfway through the season, they were six points clear at the top of League One. And given where we are now with the, with the season suspended, I think, you know, that, that start to the season was the story of the EFL, uh, certainly before the 1st of January. So uh, Gareth Ainsworth gets credit for that in our eyes. He's fifth in our managers of the season list. Fourth is... Richie Wellens, uh, the Swindon manager. I'll take the start here because you're going to have to gather yourself before giving yet more praise to a, a Swindon manager and a Swindon team. But um, <laughs> I, I actually had a listen back this morning to NTT20 meets Richie Wellens, uh, which we performed last season. And it's actually a terrible memory for me for two reasons. Firstly, because I forgot to uh, plug in the microphone. So the audio was recorded just through my laptop speaker, which everyone knows is not the ideal way to record audio, but just about salvaged it. Uh, and secondly, because in my introduction of him, I mentioned his stats as Swindon manager so far. And he basically had a go at me and said that I shouldn't include the first game, which they lost 4-0, because he'd only been there for a day and he had just picked the same team as the week before and he hadn't really got his feet under the table. And he's quite a... Um, he's, I mean, he's quite... I don't think intimidating is the right word, but he'll certainly speak his mind. And to start an interview like that, I was slightly concerned that it was going to be a bit of a write-off. As it was, it turns out, I think that is just a bit of a feature of his uh, of his media persona. And as it was, he was an unbelievably good interview. Very, very honest uh, about his time, both as a player and a manager. But I think what most people took away from that interview was that this is a guy who'd had a, a, a brief spell in charge of Oldham as a, as part of a sinking ship, really, as they dropped down from League One to League Two. He had taken over a Swindon side that had just kind of been, I don't know if stumbling along is, uh, stumbling along is the wrong word, but it's hard to be impressed by much of what Swindon had done pre-Wellens in the last, well, since we've been doing the pod, certainly five years or so. They, not only had they dropped from League One to League Two, but they hadn't really been, been up to much, to be honest. And it, it, it didn't really make sense, but the... <coughs> What he's done since he's taken charge in half a season or so last year and then the summer they had and the way that they've started and continued this season, it, it was almost exactly as he explained it on Not The Top 20 NTT 20 meets. It was amazing listening back. He pretty much told me what he was going to do and has just executed all of it. So seriously impressive in the sense that this is a guy who even as an inexperienced manager, had such a strong idea and vision of how he was going to turn around a club that was kind of stumbling along. Uh, and he's absolutely done that. The atmosphere around that place has changed entirely. I think home games at Swindon for quite a long time have been fairly arduous affairs, uh, not a great atmosphere, not a huge amount for fans to cheer about, to be honest, not much to be inspired about. And that's completely changed this season. So just to start yeah. with, I mean, just in... in, in in a way in which he's revolutionised the atmosphere around the place is the is, is where I wanted to start, George. But just as a team as well, they are but, quite the prospect. But just a point on that as well. If you look at the list of Swindon managers over the years, the last successful one was Paolo Di Canio, 
and he left the club in February 2013. Lee Power invested in the club and became a director two months later in April 2013. Managers since then have been Kevin McDonald, Mark Cooper, Lee Power himself, Martin Ling, very briefly, Luke Williams, David Flickcroft, Matt Taylor, Phil Brown. There is an argument to be had that the constant is probably the problem here and not the churn of managers. Some decent managers in there, you know, Flickcroft, Cooper, Phil Brown, these guys have had success elsewhere. I know that, you know, people might raise their eyebrows at those players, you know, some of those names necessarily, but Cooper doing a decent job at Forest Green. Uh, Flickcroft, someone who, you know, looking back to last season's job at Mansfield, now looks a hell of a lot better than it, than it did then. And there's definitely been some ideas at Swindon that, it would be very, very hard for a manager to succeed whilst Lee Power is in charge there. So I think just in terms of context, um, as you mentioned, the fact that he's taken them, you know, he's the first successful manager for for seven years. But not only is he doing a good job, very, very quickly he's made them a much, much better side and changed the atmosphere so impressive. The team itself, I think whenever you're a manager who these days gets your style of football named after you, we hear a lot about Wellens ball. I think that's probably a significant pointer that, that your philosophy and your style of play uh, are very much your own. Um, a lot of people will point to Owen Doyle as being such a crucial player to them. But as we've said plenty of times on the podcast, Doyle, Doyle is a striker who will score goals in a team that creates chances. He is not someone who you can stick in a team who don't create chances and expect him to create his own. So the fact that Doyle has had such a ridiculous season and scored goals at such a rate is testament to Wellens himself and the style of football that they play. Yeah, and and he, again, not to keep throwing back to that podcast, but he discussed it at length. He discussed the capacity for League Two players to, to play a, a, a really intensely short-passing, high-pressing style. He talked about the, the, the necessity to be able to adapt and to be able to do things differently so that they weren't a, a one-trick pony, so they weren't one-dimensional. And I think if you look at... A lot of the results that they've had, especially in, in more recent times where uh, there had been some question marks about their performances against the teams around them. Uh, flat track bullies, I heard mentioned at one point, but you can't say that anymore. They've, they've stood up to the tests of Crewe and of Plymouth in recent times. And to me, they've proven themselves to be the most, um, just the best all-round team. You've got a team in Crewe and there's so much to enjoy about them. Their style of football is amazing as well. Um, they play a very high possession uh, game as well and they've had these amazing late winners and all that sort of thing. I feel like Swindon as a as a structure, as a solid team are, are the best around in this division uh, and Wellens has to take the, the credit for that given what he inherited. I thought he coped with the Doyle situation very well. Um, uh, that was, I mean, that was big news across English football. Not only Doyle's goal-scoring record but then the fact that it was just such a juicy scenario. It's like something out of a soap opera with him heading back to Bradford. But Wellens, uh, again, in and, and this is force of character showing through, he seemed to to play the right notes, to use the right tone in, in discussing it, to not just to give up, to help put pressure on, on the situation at Bradford and to help it it ultimately come with the resolution that he wanted. And, and that's what he did. So look, um, the confidence that this team plays with can only come from a group of players who understand their roles, who believe in what the manager has to say uh, and and are comfortable and able to execute that. So nothing really not to be hugely impressed about. And although we've talked about attacking systems, which are very impressive, defensively they're perfectly good as well. And that is why they are towards the top of League Two. Second, as you mentioned earlier, they have got the best points per game record because they're locked with Crew having played one game fewer. So plenty to like about Richie Wellens' Swindon. Uh, as as a start to a managerial career, it is highly, highly impressive. And he's not the only one in League Two who you can say that about, but he's certainly someone that I'm looking forward to watching uh, as his career develops with Swindon and possibly beyond in the future. Uh, who's number three, George? Someone who is not at the start of their career. But someone who also has their style of football named after them. Uh, in the same imaginative way. It is, of course, Leeds' Marcelo Bielsa. And I can hear the groans of many listeners <laughs> as I say it. But if you disagree, um, get a new hobby. Because irrespective of last season and irrespective of the fact that they were favourites to get promotion this season and that they have at times maybe underperformed, the job that Marcelo Bielsa does at Leeds is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I 
maintain even 18 months over 18 months nearly two years into his reign the the tune that he gets out of this group of players doesn't may really make any sense the fact that he has turned Luke Ayling into comfortably the best fullback in the championship is absolutely bonkers the fact he's turned Calvin Phillips from this you know box to box basically attacking midfielder who did nothing into this holding monster uh, I'm not going to call him Perlo because his passing isn't as good but his Breaking down of play and his energy around in, in, in uh, defending that back line is so, so crucial. Where did that come from? Matthias Click farmed out to, to being, you know, surplus to requirements the season before he arrived. Suddenly, this uh, dominant midfield player, Jack Harrison, another player who's come on so much this season, Bamford leading the line, not scoring goals, but doing. I'm getting quite a strong, um, I'm getting quite a strong player development vibe from you here, Well, George. that's it. And that's why you cannot take away what he's done this season because of what they did last season and because they choked in that second half against Derby last season because the, the, the manner with which they play football, the dominance they exert over these sides, in my opinion, they should be so much further clear at the top of the table and there, there is a, a, there's a failure of that. But in my opinion, that is a personal failure from some players rather than anything to do with Marcelo Bielsa. The issue has been in terms of goalkeeping at times this season, discipline at times this season with the aforementioned Phillips finishing with the aforementioned Bamford, the key person there. But even so, the way they're set up, the way they play football, the way that they batter sides, and, and what I, I do not think is by any stretch the best squad in this league is so, so impressive. And, and you know, if there's any question for me, you know, in terms of the overachieving, Alex Neal is maybe one that we haven't spoken about so far, um, who should be commended. But in terms of the championship player, uh, manager of the season, Absolutely no doubt in my mind that, that Bielsa is the one who deserves it. There are certain sticks that uh, managers can get beaten with, certain things that stick to a manager that are very difficult to get rid of for Bielsa. Uh, burnout is a word that comes synonymously with any criticism of Bielsa, with any breakdown of poor runs of form that his clubs uh, suffer. Uh, and it, it's just interesting to me that you can have uh, so much clarity and so many people so sure that this Leeds team are burning out that they're too tired physically and mentally and that's why they're going through a poor run of form and let's be clear between uh, well mid-December and mid-February they only won two league games out of 10 I think it was yeah uh, 11 actually they only won two games now that's not a good run of form for a team that's going for automatic promotion and amidst all the head scratching and the uh, understanding that there were a lot of good chances being missed. There was also sort of, you know, the classic psychological burnout, physical burnout, all of that sort of stuff flying around. And that goes quite very quickly when you win five games in a row without conceding a goal. Uh, the way that they played, certainly in games against Hull when they won 4-0, um, it, it hasn't hinted at this burnout. So you do wonder whether some of the things that Bielsa gets uh, criticised about might just be narratives that, in reality, get washed away pretty quickly. Another one is, and, and I was guilty of this, we had a long discussion during that poor run about Bielsa's stubbornness. Uh, and I was making the point that a lot of the uh, problems that Leeds were having could be put down to a stubbornness from the manager. And it's funny looking back now, and just as, just as you maybe lean towards more negatives during a bad run of form, you lean towards positives during this run of form. As I said, five wins in a row without conceding a goal. You realise that that stubbornness is, is it's it's the same coin. It's the other side of, it's the it's the negative side of the coin where the positive is, genius manager, uh, incredible tactician, pure belief in his own way of doing things. He doesn't let things affect his decision making because he's got such belief in his um, in his philosophies, ideologies, all of those floaty words that you can use. Just pure belief in his process, pure belief in his management style. That's the same coin as the stubborn chat that we have. And, uh, and and that's why you can kind of go either way, whether things are going well, whether things are going badly. Actually, the character traits are the same, whether you're praising him for his pure belief and ideological way of running a team or whether you're criticising him for his stubbornness. You, you just realise that is Marcelo Bielsa. That's his character. Um, as you've said, they create tons of chances. They more or less restrict the opposition better than any other side, despite this intense uh, pressing star that they have. Uh, there was a high-profile wobble, as I mentioned, where the defensive record was very poor, but they're back to, to, to what it was at the start of the season. And uh, they're a very, very dominant side who, 
if and when football returns, depending on what happens, probably will be a Premier League side that uh, that we won't be discussing on this podcast much longer. So um, there's the Bielsa love in. We're up to number two now, George. Who's number two on our list of managers of the season in the EFL? This one might raise a few eyebrows, I think, but yours are raised right now, I can see. Mm. Uh, Mike Duff, Cheltenham Town's Mike Duff is number two. Uh, I imagine Swindon and uh, crew fans probably won't like this. Exeter fans probably, probably not either. But in terms of the whole job that Duff has done and continues to do at Cheltenham, he took over in September last year with Cheltenham in 18th position, fighting off relegation. The turnaround of that club has been unbelievable on the pitch. And there isn't any reason for it. There hasn't been a massive investment in the playing squad. There's been a fair turnover of players instigated by Duff himself. The recruitment, which we'll get onto, is, is, is part of that as well. But they're currently fifth in League Two. They've got a game in hand on the teams around them. They're fully in this automatic promotion race, if it happens. And, you know, I mentioned, going back to the Billich example, again, looking at West Brom's success this season, you can make cases for quite a few reasons that aren't Slavon Billich. With Cheltenham's success and the turnaround of that club, it's impossible to get away from Duff. And this is a guy who, who came in from Burnley as an under-23 coach, never having managed a first team before. This is his first full season after a pre-season and a transfer window in charge of a League Two side. And he has a club whose wage budget and probably squad should not have them punching towards the top end of League Two, unlike Swindon and unlike Crew. But he has them there and they're fully there on merit. The clear headline when it comes to Cheltenham under Mike Duff is that they have the best defensive record uh, in the EFL. They've conceded just 27 goals in their 36 games, which is, uh, well, conceding three goals every four games, 0.75 goals a game. By any measurement, it's an unbelievable record. Uh, We've spoken before, and it's not an original thought of mine. It was something that I saw a friend of the pod, Mike Holden, talk about. I think he was discussing it as one of Kenny Jackett's favourite phrases. And it's not what is quite a popular focus among statisticians on clean sheets, uh, but actually on looking at the zeros and ones, basically recognising that in a, a sport where randomness and luck and individual brilliance can play a part, can, can basically see any team score a goal at any time, not necessarily to overvalue pure clean sheets, but to look at zeros and ones as, a, as a, an acceptance that, yeah, you might concede one goal in a game, but actually in doing so, you're still very much in it and, and try to avoid sc- conceding any more than that. Well, Cheltenham's record is amazing. Uh, 13 clean sheets, sure. 19 times they've conceded just one goal. So that's 21, uh, sorry, that's 32 uh, O's and ones so far this season. Only four times have they conceded more than one goal. And that's why you start to see they are, why they are where they are, rather. And I think, you know... <laughs> We like to watch very, very good attacking football. That is obviously what catches the eye. It's what captures the imagination. But you talk to anyone within the game and it's so much more focused on what to do without the ball, on on structure, on um, movement out of possession and and making things difficult for the the opposition side. And I, I don't know what it takes for a manager to set up a team this well defensively. That's what I find so impressive. And there's units all over the pitch. Uh, the back three where Greaves was part of it in the first half of the season, the youngster on loan from Hull. But in recent weeks, we've seen Toza, we've seen Raglan, we've seen Boyle. That's been the, the back three in, in recent weeks. They're almost impregnable. Uh, the fullbacks, the wingbacks, I should say, in this 3-5-2 system, they're not flying forward in the manner of, of many wingbacks in the modern game. But what you'll see is that Chris Hussey down the left, he might not have the, the pace, he might not have the physical attributes that you might um, consider to be normal for a for a, a, a wing back in a system like this but his delivery is so good but he's such a clever player that he creates chances for fun um, but they've got that great mix in midfield as well this is this is not a team of cloggers this is not a team that just lumps it long and defends for their lives and tries to keep it tight uh, in Doyle Hayes in Ryan Broom especially they've got creative players they've got players with skill and vision and and and, and with creativity uh, and I guess the big news since January has been well 
you're clearly the best defensive side in the league and that speaks for something, but you're not doing enough to score enough goals to put teams away. And there was a a period of time where they were drawing just far too many games. Well, that's changed entirely. As we record, since the start of February, they've won six games, drawn one, lost one. They've got over those chance creation and those goal-scoring issues. Um, And that's because Alfie May joined in January. Duff clearly isolated him as a target. That deal got done really early. You'd have thought there'd be other teams in for him, but he wanted to join Burnley. That obviously speaks a lot to good planning, good recruitment, and that kind of comes back to, to character as well. Duff, you don't hear that much from him, do you, George? He's not the sort no. of guy... I, I, I couldn't tell you too much about the nuances of his character other than understanding that this is a very, very level-headed man who clearly plans meticulously, who has carried out step-by-step improvement <clears throat> of this team since he joined it and who might be leading them towards League One, which given the, the size and stature of the club... Given the budgets, which we kind of keep coming back to because it is a way of measuring managerial performance, uh, it's, it's absolutely remarkable that they could be, that they could be near promotion uh, and it's huge credit uh, to him for, for doing that job. Yeah, I, I think quite a good kind of barometer would be if, you know, I'm an Oxford fan, but if you're a, if you're a top of League One, you know, top half, or any, basically any team in League One, if you're a fan and your manager were to be sacked, who would you want to take over from League Two? For me, it would be Duff comfortably he would be my choice to take to be our next manager and that is a sign that he's doing the right thing it's a sign that he is someone who has a positive impact on teams um whose character carries him in a beneficial way and um yeah up the duff up the duff as we always like to say um what about dun 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 who's number one shock i've been saying it for ages mark robbins of coventry city obviously the side without a home top of League One, destined surely for the championship if and when the season can get back underway. Cruelly cut short the season at a time where they were five points clear and with a game in hand over all the sides down to seventh. The job that Mark Robbins has done, not just this season, but, but basically since he took over, bringing them up out of League Two, having a very good season last season, having to manage them at home at St Andrews and just, yeah, you run out of superlatives for not only exceeding expectation, but the manner with which they do it, the players that he's bringing through. Um, yeah, he is, in, in my view, un- unarguably, at this present moment in time, the manager who's done the best job in the EFL in the nineteen twenty season. It's interesting. We, we've spoken about the temperament and the character and personality of some of these managers. Uh, Robbins is another one who... Y- 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 He's not a huge character in the way that a lot of managers in the EFL are. And you can understand why, given the job of being a football manager, given having to manage a group of young adults for the most part, and given to deal with all the egos and all the individual motivations uh, that they have. And you can see why it lends itself, in theory, to big characters. Now, Robin's with what he projects openly to, I suppose, in interviews, but, but just in, in general, even on the touchline, doesn't feel like one of those massive characters. But he clearly has this ability to oversee a football club, to keep things uh, level-headed. And when you've got the off-field problems that Coventry have, when you've got a fan base who have basically been treated like complete rubbish for such a long time, who quite rightly are railing against the ownership who quite rightly are protesting as they have done over the last few years about what's been going on behind the scenes when you're having to move away from the town where the club is based to play somewhere else and you can oversee all of that keep your head while all around you are losing theirs as a as a Rudyard might say uh, I think that's it that's got to be a huge tick in the box it's got to be um, one of the things you point to as a massive achievement but also Let's talk about the football itself because I think sometimes there's too much focus on on Coventry's off-field stuff. There's I've actually seen Coventry fans recently saying that some of the coverage of their club, I think people assume that because there are off-field issues, if they don't know much about them, they kind of assume that means they don't have any Crisis money. Club. Yeah, Crisis yeah, club with no money and a bad budget. That's not actually really the case with Coventry. No. Um, and so it, it's this is not necessarily a hard luck story in terms of punching above budgetary weight although I wouldn't expect them to be at the very top of this division. Um, But as you mentioned, it's the development of players. It's the use of squad. The fact that that 
after like two months of the season where they were already doing pretty well and playing like quite a specific short passing, high possession based game. And it wasn't quite working in terms of having them towards the very, very top. It wasn't quite working in terms of them really turning into a winning machine. That tactical change, which we've discussed, that came at halftime of a game against Fleetwood that randomly we were at during an EFL midweeker uh, back in October, where he switched to three at the back, having not played that all season and has stuck with that since then. I mean, it's, it's, it's the obvious moment where this season changed, where Coventry went from being a playoff contender, let's say, to being the, the, the clear class act in the division who, you know, at the point where it stopped, looked like they were basically running away with things um, with an absurd defensive record, having not conceded, you know, talk about O's and ones. They conceded two against Shrewsbury on the 14th of December. Now that's about 15 games ago. Um, then, they, you know, they're keeping so many clean sheets. They're keeping it so tight at the back. Um, but as we've discussed, it's not just about that. And they have been able to, to get ahead in games, haven't they? Their game management, George, has been very good because we've also discussed that they're not this like absolute attacking machine that churns out chance after chance. No, I, I'm not necessarily convinced that the table and, and their dominance over the league is necessarily reflected in their dominance over sides. Unlike what I said about Leeds, I, I think that if the season does play out as it will, I'm, I'm not sure they'll keep that five-point gap. But that doesn't take anything away from Robbins himself, who's created a culture and a side who know how to win. They're happy to win games 1-0. They've got a player in Godden who they can rely for on those goals at times as well. And you mentioned you know, the ability to, to kind of chop and change those midfield options into something that makes sense is really impressive. Mm. Um, they're just a side who combine everything that you want in a decent team, punching above their weight. They're very hard to beat. And again, you have to say the key reason for this the one constant, the person who's overseen this upward curve and this upward trend is Mark Robbins. And for that reason, I mean, it would be, if you look at all the sides occupying automatic promotion spots at the moment, Coventry would, would probably be the biggest shock. Not only are they in the automatic promotion places, but they're five points clear at the top. I'm looking forward to for people arguing a case against Mark Robbins at the moment being the deserving winner of the unofficial, <laughs> unfinished EFL Manager of the Season Awards sponsored by not the, top, not the Top 20 because it seems clear to me that he is the uh, outstanding candidate. He also gets just that last bit of extra credit from me as something of a, a, a tactics enthusiast, shall I say, that I'm going to say it. A lot of people call this 3-4-2-1. He's playing a 3-6-1 formation and that is absolutely magnificent. Like that shows a a creativity to dream up a way of getting the most out of a squad of players that's absolutely stacked with central midfield players and central attacking midfield players, of working out a way to manage those players, to use them at different times with their different skill sets. Sometimes you see Shipley, sometimes you see O'Hare, sometimes you see Allen, sometimes you see Westbrook. Almost always you see Kelly and Walsh in the double pivot behind them and they are both magnificent players. But it's that sort of... I don't know if it's necessarily flexibility. I'd, I'd go as far as to say ingenuity, to play a system that not everyone else is playing. Um, we, we know that a lot of teams have gone three at the back, especially in League Two, increasing numbers in, in League One as well. That is a trend that's that sort of stacked up over the last few years since Conte's Chelsea did it, since Nuno's Wolves did it in the Championship. But he's not just doing a sort of identikit 3-5-2 or 3-4-3. Or three, three. This is... This is his own spin on something, and I think that's a hugely impressive thing. You know, like Bielsa and his very specific style that can really barely be recreated. Um, like Mike Duff, to an extent, making making his team uh, the best defensive team in the EFL. Like Richie Wellens to, uh, Richie Wellens to some extent as well. Th these managers, uh, and Ainsworth, of course, these managers are all doing something pretty special with what they've got at their disposal. They are our top five managers of the season in the EFL. Gareth Ainsworth... Richie Wellens, Marcelo Bielsa, Mike Duff and Mark Robbins. George, it's, it's quite nice to get away from the, uh, the travails of the current situation surrounding the whole world, isn't it? And just talk about <laughs> football for a bit. It is. I mean, we discussed that next week we might do a players one, but I'm now thinking if people liked it, we should do goalkeepers, defenders, oh God. midfielders, strikers. That's four more weeks of content. I definitely can't waffle on about goalkeepers. <laughs> I don't know enough about the art of goalkeeping. I what know I know which ones make a load of clangers. I know the ones that have good 
save percentage and you know good underlying why, numbers but why don't not. i do half an hour on george long and then you do half an hour on lee camp that <laughs> okay that sounds but, like... i mean in all serious though i think in all seriousness um i think we're very open to suggestions on you know we are going to be doing a monday podcast every week until the end of this season where we might give ourselves a bit of a break whenever that might be so we'd love um you know to hear from you guys as to what you want to hear what you want us to cover if you enjoyed that um just just anything you like and we are we're, we're taking requests if, if we were a dj booth we wouldn't have lights next to us saying no requests we would be ready to take them grant my last request and just let me hold you like that oh my god <laughs> right i think that's probably it i just wanted to shout out uh, an extra category that i created which is Best manager that was appointed mid-season. One for each league. Gary Rowett in the championship for the job that he's doing at Millwall. Ian Holloway in League 2 with Grimsby. And then in League 1, George, well, I almost gave it to no one. But we decided it it probably is Phil Parkinson. It's fairly slim pickings in terms of uh, in-season appointments in League 1. But um, it it probably is Phil Parkinson. that There was that period where no one could score against Sunderland and they flew up the table. It slightly hit a bit of a wall uh, and as the league is now, they're just outside the playoff places. But um, Parkinson is, as I say, slim pickings, the best manager that's been appointed mid-season in League One. And that's that. That's the NTT20 Monday pod. What else have we got coming this week, George? Because there's always more audio content on the way from us, isn't there? Yeah, we're doing our quiz again on Friday. Uh, with the Instagram live reveal on Sunday at 7pm. And of course, we've got the Going Up, Going Down podcast, which we will bring to you with our lovely partners, The Athletic, on Thursday. So plenty more EFL action from us, even if there's nothing going on on the pitch. Stay safe, guys. Please do keep getting in touch with us at NTT20pod on Twitter, on Instagram. We love hearing from you, uh, your wild and wacky takes from the world of the EFL. We want to know who your top five managers of the season are as well. So please do tweet us at NTT20pod. I'd like to know who is in your top five and why. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Make make sure you're subscribed to the Going Up, Going Down podcast feed as well, where we will be back on Thursday with more goodness there. I cannot wait for my EFL rewind. I've got something very exciting in the can. Uh, George... Stay safe. And you, mate. Bye.